Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersupportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 168 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us, listener. Today we're going to be discussing next year's kit and travelling to the mountains by train and electric vehicle. Plus, in a, a similar theme, we're going to be looking at solar panels in Meribel. We've got a Team GB update and a few words from Ed Lee. Now, my name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guests on the show today. We have two first-timers on the show, both from Protect Our Winters. Firstly, I'd like to introduce uh, Lauren McCallum, General Manager at Protect Our Winters. How are you, Lauren? I'm good. Thanks so much for uh, for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say about driving to the Alps electric car. And also from Protect Our Winters, fundraising and partnerships manager is Lindsay Dixon. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, how are you going? I'm very well, thank you. I believe you're speaking to us right now from Val d'Isere in France. I am indeed. Sunny and snowfilled, so very happy over here. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show. And listeners, uh, regular listeners, will uh, know Al Morgan, our equipment expert, who joins us again today. Hi, Al. You all right? Hi, Ian. I am great, thank you, because I've just been skiing. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, you move us on to my next question, which I normally start with for our guests, which is, when did you last ski and snowboard? So, Al, you mentioned it, and I know we're going to come on to this, but where were you last skiing? I was in the amazingly fantastic resort of La Clusia, which I've not been to before. People may know it because of Candide, but it is spectacular and we were really lucky with the snow. Yeah, well, I've I've skied there uh, a couple of times. It's one of those resorts, you know, you think of it as being quite a small place, but actually it's got some really good kind of free ride off piece, if I recall uh, correctly, as as you say, you referred to Condi Tovex. Maybe I'll stick a link to the show notes. He certainly exploited that before. Lindsay, you're in Val d'Isere. I'm guessing you probably skied fairly recently. Yeah, I skied yesterday. I uh, skied over to Teen to meet a friend for lunch. Uh, I am very jealous. That really is, uh, you know, working remotely done in the best way uh, possible. Uh, what was it, what were the conditions like? Pretty good, pretty good. We, uh, as always, you could do with a little more snow, but it's been it stayed cold. So the snow that we did have two weeks ago has has stayed. And um, if you if you seek it out, there's still some nice on track pieces. Really? Okay, well, that's good. I mean, it must be at least uh, over two weeks since the last snow. So if you can still find untracked, then you're doing really well. What What about yourself, uh, Lauren? When were you last on snow? I was last on snow on Monday, actually, uh, up Cairngorm uh, Mountain on my splitboard. So keeping the, the UK massive going. Um, but yeah, I think I was feeling inspired because just, I've just come back, obviously, from the Alps. And I was in a little resort called Setlow. Um, yeah, I know the one, Lake Setlow. Yeah, yeah, love it. But first time being there, what an awesome little place. Really reminded me of Saint-Foy. 
right okay one of those type of places actually um regular listeners uh, to the show will know chris moran from intersport ski hire and he actually told me that he was with you in les and i was talking to him about it about some of the touring that you did there and the incredible views that you can get you know looking both in a southerly direction and an orderly direction back towards mont blanc as well oh do you know um i've seen the best inversion i think of my life all the way to mont blanc you know, all the way to sort of like, I guess it would be like the Duz Alp, maybe that direction. Yeah. Uh, the sort of Chartreuse Mountains. I, it left a couple of kettles on in the valley, put it that way. Um, <laughs> um, it was, it was, it was really awesome. And yeah, it, was, it sounds like a pretty easy resort to get to um, by train. Well, just for the listeners' benefit, I think I'm right in saying that Leicetlow is pretty near to Grenoble, so you would travel down to Grenoble, and then it's a short transfer from there. Yeah, yeah, either a bus or a share taxi or something. But and, um, and also you mentioned Cairngorm, so I've got to ask you what were conditions like there? Well, good. Um, yeah, I think all, all resorts are open. Um, at Cairngorm, it's been snowing, but it's getting a little bit warm um, in the next couple of days, and then it's getting cold again next week, so hopefully we'll get some some touring. Yeah. Okay. And um, I will, uh, listeners, you might recognise Lauren's voice if you're a watcher of uh, Ski Sunday because I was watching Ski Sunday the other day and there was a really brilliant segment in there. We had Tim Warwood on and did some split boarding and it was yourself and uh, Don Winter uh, from Protect Our Winters and, yeah, you know, discussing the climate change aspect of things. But, you know, you got some really good powder and that was very early in the season up in Scotland, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the week before Christmas. So uh, I think I think it was about the 20th. And that's the thing with Scotland, you know, when it's good, you've just got to go. Like <laughs> you've just got uh, you know get book the train or get all of you in, in a car and and just go for it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we're talking about good snow. We do have a few snow reports uh, this week, so I'll just drop them in now. We're going to hear from Bethany Garner, who's been out in Flen. Uh, Dave Burrows has been out in Latwil uh, in Italy, and we also got a little uh, snow report from uh, Ed Lee of uh, BBC Ski Sunday, who is uh, splitboarding in Courchevel. Hi Ian, it's Bethany um, reporting from Flen. I'm here at the British School Girls Races. Um, it's an event for girls from all over the UK to do a couple of days of racing for fun, some a bit more serious. Um, and it's organised by the Ladies Ski Club and conditions for the girls are, are pretty much spot on. Perfect peace, bit of sunshine. Um, and actually perfect piece for anyone who's coming out on holiday uh, to the, this part of the French Alps. Um, some more snow is forecast at the end, end of this week. So once uh, this episode is live, I think we'll have had a dusting of new snow, but nothing too major. And then sunshine again for this weekend. And just to say, I'm going to be lucky enough to be going this weekend to the slalom in Chamonix, the Kandahar, uh, where I'm hoping to see uh, Dave riding in action and maybe even podium well that's optimistic but after kitzville who knows so yeah again great racing conditions and anyone that's got a holiday coming up you you're in for some uh, some good snow and, and a bit of a treat so enjoy hello ian it's dave burrows from snow pro ski school i'm on a lift and i'm with uh my buddies from back home who are out here for the weekend uh say hello to nick hey how you doing say hello to hughie yo how are you all right, so these guys are out here, and we've had, I've had, I booked myself out of the diary, and I've had a lovely couple of days telemarking around with these dudes. They've been skiing, and we've got two snowboarders who, with us who didn't make it out this morning. Uh, we are in Morjan, and what is the snow like here in Morjan, boys? Tell me. This morning, it's uh, 
clear blue skies, there's a beautiful layer of snow all over the ground, and a piece of fairly empty, so we're uh, enjoying our last morning here. All right, yeah, because you're going to the airport this morning, aren't you, uh, later on today. What about you? What do you what, what, uh, tell us about, because we skied various places, so you got in Thursday, we skied Verbier on Friday. How was Verbier? Um, Verbier, again, we've been really lucky. Uh, clear blue skies, uh, they've been pasted really nicely. It just started to soften up around lunchtime, so you'd really dig your skis in. There was a beautiful layer on top, nothing scratchy around, really enjoyable. Yeah, Verbier was pretty special actually because it's got you've got the altitude there as well. So you've got that kind of high altitude snow, you know, up above, what was it, two and a half, three thousand meters? It was just brilliant, you know, like really, really good. The kind of snow you sort of dream of, you know, hero snow, we call it. You can't ski on that, you can't ski. And then we skied Saturday, where did we ski? Avoria, mainly. We went and checked out the World Cup piste over there, and that was all right, wasn't it? It was uh, brilliant. It was a very good red run, very nice, uh, pretty busy, but it was good. Um, it was more frightening getting through the cloud at the top, so I felt the fear, <laughs> and I did it anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, that was cool. Uh, obviously, it was a Saturday in Avoria, sunny Saturday, so it was absolutely rammed. Um, and then Sunday, where did we skied in Villa Sunday, and I thought the conditions in Villa were pretty good, actually. Like, they held up really, really well. What about you? What do you think of Villa on Sunday? Yeah, Villa was really nice. Uh, again, it was really busy on a Sunday in a, in a nice resort with the sun out. Um, it was really nice snow, nice and grippy again, although I did find towards the end of the afternoon it was very scratchy and very cut up, but with the amount of people that's kind of expected. All right, so there you go. That's uh, so not just a professional opinion, the pro- the opinion of two ski tourists who are out here for the week. I hope they've had a lovely, lovely time, and we're sending them back on their way to dull, grey, and dreary London, uh, while I carry on enjoying these beautiful high-pressure conditions that we've got. Thanks, mate. Say bye, bye, boys. Yeah, bye. I hope it rains. <laughs> <laughs> The French Alps got the best of the last snowfall. And the good news is, across the Alps, it stayed incredibly cold. We've had average temperatures here of around minus 10 for the last four or five days. North Face is down to seven or 800 metres of maintained snow. It's the cold, longest sustained cold period I've seen in the Alps for a while. So it's been glorious snow up here still. We've been touring around, splitboarding and really enjoying ourselves but it's back to work tomorrow in Chamonix uh, there's a slalom down in Telezouche and then as you say we'll be back here the world championships I'm really fascinated it will be a, an amazing test of the world's largest ski area they've got the world champion alpine ski world championships during half term so it's a logistical challenge is the way I would say it but looking at what they've got here and the way it's set up i think it's going to be spectacular al you mentioned your last uh, skiing was in la calusa and you were over there last week uh, for the sigb ski test and i'm very interested in that but in the green room when we we're chatting earlier you mentioned like the snow was really good but it's been pretty cold in the alps as well right yeah honestly it was bitterly cold i'm used to the cold in the mountains but this just felt different um, I had some friends who were over in Lake Contamine, I think it was minus 20. It wasn't quite that cold. But even the, the first day hiking for lines off the back, had two insulating mid layers on, helmet on, gloves, and I was still cold hiking, which never happens for me. So it was just that kind of weird, weird weather. But the plus side was that the snow was in incredible shape because the temperature remained low. 
Well, that's great. And you went out there a bit early. So you got your your own skiing uh, out the way uh, first before the actual ski test. Now, we have covered this on the podcast before, but I'm thinking all listeners, you know, won't be familiar with it. So do you want to give us an idea of what the ski test is i mean it does it's a bit like it's written, uh, what it is is written on the tin but kind how of. does it work what's the, what's the format how does it yeah so the sigb the snow sport industries of great britain is an organization that essentially represents the trade in the uk predominantly hardware skis but, it's, but everything really clothing goggles they do a trade show combined with with, with OTS, the outdoor trade show. So that happened a couple of weeks earlier. And then they run a test for the UK industry. So retailers go and media go and test the products. And so last week I was out, it runs for four and a half days, Monday through to kind of Friday midday. Some stay a little bit longer. And we can test boots, skis, bindings, poles, helmets, clothing, you name it. Most stuff is out there to test, which is an amazing opportunity to really find out what's happening for this coming season so we were skiing the 23 24 season products right okay and so let's just take an example of skis how does that work if i recall correctly from when it was in kutai and this is the first yeah. year it's been in lacluza it's been That's in kutai and pila for a long time there is kind of one piece that for the piece skis for example that you just go up and down again and again is that right well, to get a quick enough turnaround, so you need to do laps on products. So there's there's over 630 pairs of skis. That's just skis. Never mind all the other stuff that was there. So you're never going to get through those, but you want to get a really good feel for the skis. And it needs to be, if you're going to compare one ski to another, it needs to be consistent. So you tend to stick to the same kind of slopes for the same kind of skis. So if you're testing piste, it's great. There's a bubble straight. So we were testing from the balm area, which is right at the top, B-A-L-M-E. Um, there's a little village of tents and things, with all the products. And then there was bubbles going up, which is quite quick with a fantastic piste on the way down. Great for piece of stuff, stuff off the side if you're going to test all mountain skis as well. And you may wish to go further afield if you're testing free ride or touring. So, yeah, I have no idea how many times I lapped that bottom piece, <laughs> but it was a fair number. So, but it was amazing. It was awesome. I cannot complain. Okay. So, if you're testing skis, presumably you wear the same boots the whole time when you're testing the same set of skis the same category of skis to make sure you you don't have any variability within that yeah you you try to remove as many variables as possible the issue that you have if you want to test boots and skis and poles and bindings ideally you would test all flat mount skis with the same binding and all piece skis with the same boot there's not that much time so experience comes into it a lot and you remove as many variables as is practical in that week so i will try and test piece skis all with the same boot i'll try and test touring skis all with the same boot and i'll try and test boots with various skis so the same boot with a number of skis that's how it generally works okay and i guess every tester has their own method is yeah. it that you get down to the bottom of a slope and then immediately you're taking your notes as to what you thought of that ski, for example, in the different uh, uh, categories? So, yeah, lifts are a brilliant opportunity to take notes. So yeah. I have test cards and I have different test cards depending on the category product that I'm testing and the kind of product that I'm testing. So I take notes on that. I'm filming on all of my runs. Uh, I use a 360 camera, so I record on that, and I can record on my phone as well. So there's ve technology really, really helps make it slicker. Um, but 
honestly, it's amazing how much you cannot replace handwritten notes. It's so vital. Right. Okay. And handwritten notes when it's freezing cold has got to be a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Use a pencil, not a pen. <laughs> but that's what the beauty in it being a bubble lift as opposed to a drag lift or chair lift. You weren't too cold doing that. So. Right. And those test cards, are they your own test cards or are they the same for everyone? Is so the SIGB card? has their own test format, their S card that's the same irrespective of the product. And that tends to be a point score. So you fill that in. That's part of your commitment as a tester. But I also have my own cards, which has a lot more free text so that when I'm writing articles or reporting on products for next winter, I have much deeper recall of exactly what your product was like you know if i'm testing 60 100 or more products i'm not going to remember all the different nuances between each product so i need to write it down <laughs> right for sure and what about boots then how do you test boots you must ski as you said you talk about removing the variables yeah you ski on the same skis each time uh, maybe you might have uh, hybrid or touring boots you're obviously going to be on a different ski for that, but is that yeah that yeah works? exactly now you will test boots on various skis so you need to know how for example if you're going to test a free ride boot you want to know okay this boot's going to be something that's used by somebody on stiffer heavier skis and it's also might be used by somebody on a lighter ski so you try and add those factors in so you're going to test it with a softer ski you're going to test it with a heavier stiffer ski you might test it with a piece ski as well and you'll try and do some kind of uphill now skinning takes a lot of time so you don't get to do a lot of skinning and testing but you need to get a feel for how that product performs right okay and is this media industry only is it open to the public if there was like a really keen skier out there who thought right i want to see what's going on for next year you know i i i want to go and try them myself it is it is trade so it's it is part of the buying cycle for the retailers so the retailers need to test product to know if they're going to stock in their store it's product they want to stock so they meet at slide the two weeks before they look at products they may have seen it before that as well and then this is their kind of last opportunity really to get on the product before they have to place their orders so it's kind of like now is the deadline for placing orders so they can be in store in time for next season right and okay. then the media also goes along because people need to find out about the product and that's our job right for sure and you know you appear on the podcast on a regular basis telling us about uh kit and are you right for the telegraph and and other uh, publications as well is there any sense of competition between the different reviewers? Uh, you know, if you have your thoughts about something, are you all going to share those? Or if you've got a certain idea, you're going to keep that to yourself? That is an awesome question. So so uh, around about eight years ago, yes, that was definitely the case. There were certain publications that really held their cards close to their chest they didn't kind of even between their testers they didn't let them talk about product they wanted it. it has changed massively and um it's fantastic because i write for fourline i write for the telegraph i write for skeaky info and i advise just consumers about product and basically what we all want as media is that people can go out and have the best time in the mountain and when you're in the mountains you talk and, and we do this on our testing and it gives us a much broader view of how a product performs because our performance for me will be different to sophie or dickie from four line or whoever it may be and it's really good to discuss these things excellent and so you mentioned there are like 600 plus pairs of uh, skis yeah. there must be a few when you go into the week that you're near the top of your list i don't know if there are you know unlimited uh, numbers that you can try do you have to book in to get the ones that you want 
So, no, you don't have to book in. You may turn up at a brand. Let's say you turn up at the headstand, for example, um, and you want to take a scale. That scheme may be out. And then hopefully they can either keep a hold of it when it next comes in or you just go back for it. And it's the same with all of these. It's Skiing's a really small industry and everybody knows each other. So everybody's, you know, skiers are really nice, friendly people. And it's the same in this situation in testing. People will try and do you a favor, try and hold on to it. You're not going to get through 600 pairs though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. And uh, that's really interesting. So would you say that there are any general trends that we're looking at for 23, 24? Yeah, Is it possible to <laughs> summarize that? Yeah. So one thing, let's talk about boots first. So on a ski boot, you generally have a hard metal clip or a wire metal strap with a clip, and that's how you do it up. In the touring world and in cycling as well, on cycle shoes, we've had a bow assist, which is a dial with a cable. If you ski or snowboard, you may know this on the back of your helmet, a little dial to cinch the helmet around your head. For next season, for the first time in alpine skiing, BOA has developed a system, and that's been used by four ski brands. So this isn't a touring product. This is about your downhill performance boot and the wrap and fit that you get around your foot because of this is absolutely phenomenal. And it's very different, not in a negative way, but really positive for consumers and boot fitters. It's a, an amazing hold around the foot without hot spots. So K2 are using it in downhill and a free ride style boots. Um, Atomic also using it in free ride style boots and then Salomon and Fisher are using it in regular downhill boots. So that's the boot thing. And then there's, yeah, there was one ski in particular that pretty much everybody was talking about. So I'll tell you about that in a second. But something with boots is really exciting. You can actually see it behind me. Um, if people go online, look at the image that you post. So it's called the Lang Shadow, and it's a really different way of constructing a regular downhill boot. It doesn't use BOA. Bottom half, the clog, the shoe bit of the of the boot that we talk, refer to, comes right up the spine. It's got a blade up the spine of the last numbers, and it has the most incredible energy when you're skiing. It's really interesting to see these new innovative ideas coming through in ski boots. So... But yeah, that ski that everybody's talking about, Salomon Addict Pro, it's a pieced ski. The Do-A-Non Pro version, which is fantastic, is your kind of pieced orientated all-mountain. But yeah, that Addict Pro at 66 mil underfoot was pretty sensational. Cool. Well, that is a really comprehensive uh, review there. I'm just going to uh, ask uh, uh, Lindsay and Lauren a couple of questions. Lindsay, you mentioned that you're out in Val d'Azur and you're uh, skiing. Do you have like a quiver of skis or do you stick to the same things on a, on a regular basis? I, I tend to have a, I have a pair of piece skis that are mine that I put around on. And then when the snow's good and I'm going further afield, I just rent for, for a day or so. So yep. it's nice. It means I get to try a few different ones, but also you're kind of at the mercy of what's available. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm you're thinking I should have it. spoken. I've just bought some new boots. I'm thinking I should have spoken to Al first, though, because this all sounds way, way cooler than 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 uh, uh, yeah, a lot more knowledgeable than I have. Yeah, I well, uh, definitely. Uh, I um, I think regular listeners will know I got a new pair of boots for this season, and I relied on Al's advice hugely in in terms of what I uh, purchased then. I think if, if if I was in your situation, Lindsay, and I was out in the Alps, I would probably own skis. But at the moment, I don't own skis because I tend to travel by train. Look, we'll come to that uh, uh, later. But uh, Lauren, you're a snowboarder, aren't you? I guess you probably have a split board and a snowboarder as well. Yeah, I... Um, so in Scotland, <laughs> it's always best to have a, a granite shark board 
um, which you don't you don't really mind at the start of the season and gets a few bites. Um, so I've got a bit of a rock copper. Um, I've got actually this season. Um, I'm on the Nidecker Thruster, which is their first unisex board, and it is rapid. It is so good in the powder on the piste. It's got a nice sort of three D sort of convex nose on it so it's really hard to catch i've got you size euro 42 boots so i'm I've, for for a lady for women i'm quite uh i've got a bigger shoe size so i find that women's boards can be quite narrow for me so i get quite a lot of toe and heel drag sometimes but this thruster slightly wider just charging um and also i found that the if you're if you're a smaller guy, sometimes the flex in some of the the guys' boards is, can be too stiff. So they've really hit that sweet spot, I think, for yeah, a, a wide range of, of of people. So loving that. Cool, excellent. Well, uh, th- that sounds like uh, I'd never heard that expression before. Uh, a granite shark. I like that one <laughs> a lot. If uh, if I'm going up to Scotland, uh, or depending on my timing, I'll make sure I've got that with me. Uh, Al, I wondered if I could come back to you a little while ago. I can't remember what episode it was. We touched on the carve, and because I, I mentioned I had those fitted into my uh, new boots, and I know that you use the carve uh, device when you were in uh, La Clusa, and it's a way of kind of effectively, I guess quantifying uh your the 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 level of your uh, skiing and seeing how you can improve that i wondered um how you found your experience of it was it was it useful to you carve is pretty impressive i have to say yes there's a cost to it i do think you're better off getting it fitted when you buy boots so i couldn't get it for these boots because i i like boots really snug um so it didn't fit in that i put it in a free ride boot so but that still skis really well um but just, I think people need to be mindful that, that if they have a really tight boot, they might struggle. They might need to have their boot ball ground a little or, or something like that. It's pretty amazing. You can kind of choose what mode you want it in. So if you go in free ski mode, you just ski around. There's nothing, re- you know, I had um, headphones in and I like headphone in, in the helmet rather than inside my ear like an earbud. And that, that worked really awesome. In free mode, you don't have it all the time. It just talks to you when you stop, which is great. Or you can have it in a training mode and it gives you instant feedback. And that's phenomenal because you can really adapt your skiing and try and up your score if you want, because it gives you a carb IQ score. Uh, that's great. You can try and develop that and get it better. But I really like the fact that you can work on something like your carving or your edge angle, one specific aspect of your skiing and just repetition, working on that, improving it is phenomenal so that's really good i struggle a little bit getting the big battery onto my power straps because i've my boots quite snug around my legs there's not loads of strap but all of these things you know this it's such as a minor point for the benefits that carve gives you you mentioned you know you because it can give you this audio feedback yeah. as you're skiing uh, along and that can actually be down to the turn by turn if you really want it to be yeah Literally, it gives you feedback on every channel. It's a bit like watching a game show. You have this buzzer going off in your ear if you get it wrong, or you get, a, you know, a kind of much, much, much happier sound if, if you get it right. And it's really useful. You imagine having a personal skiing instructor with you on everyone all of the time. But essentially, it's a, it's a fraction of cost. You know, I do not think Carve can replace an instructor. I think Carve can replace that personal feedback, that tailored approach that, especially with private lessons, that that gives you. But that does come at a cost, and that's not going to work for everybody. Carve won't work for everybody. It's brilliant if you're on firm snow, not as appropriate if you're going to be going skiing, powder, or touring. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you mentioned about that feedback. I think there's a feature in it that where you can 
a synchronized video to the actual yeah. car itself so you can get that visual feedback again it's not the same as an instructor but it adds another layer to it did you try yeah so one? i actually spoke to carve about this because i was over at their their office a couple of months ago and you can have somebody videoing you behind and then you can i, I believe it goes to somebody at carve or, or an instructor and, and that's how you get that feedback or whether it, the ai works so well it can do it straight through the app i didn't get to test that function but it sounds really impressive it's a relatively new feature okay okay no worries well i should be testing uh, my carve which i got fitted on the boots when i go to italy uh, later this month i guess it is so tell me al what Amazing. was your iq uh, my iq my first run was 140 Okay, 140. That's my target. Then. You're going to, get... okay, right. This is how it's going to go, is it? We're going to have a competition now. Awesome. What's yeah. the prize? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Cool. Excellent. Right, let's let's uh, move on. So we'd like to have Lauren and Lindsay with us today, and you're both from Protect Our Winters. And I wondered, Lauren, if uh, for listeners who are not familiar with the organisation, just a little introduction to so people can understand what Protect Our Winters is all about. Yeah, for sure. Um, so for those who are completely new to Protect Our Winters, Pow, or we, we call it Pow. Pow was started um, in the US by Jeremy Jones, the legendary backcountry snowboarder, who I'm pretty sure a lot of listeners are, are familiar with. Yeah, Jeremy started that about 16, 17 years ago in the US. Um, and we started a UK chapter about four and a half years ago, actually. Um, and what do we do? Well, we help passionate outdoor people become effective climate advocates to achieve systemic solutions to climate change. So that's our, that's uh, that that's what we do in a, in a in a couple of sentences. But basically, we use the passion, the influence, and just turn that into purpose. So that that love you have for skiing, that love you have for snowboarding, climbing, mountain biking, hill walking, using that to campaign for a more ambitious climate policy because you know personal lifestyle choices are really important and we'll probably come back to this um but where we are in terms of how much emissions are in the atmosphere and the big carbon reductions that we need to see now they can only come from big governmental changes so we believe that we need to kind of come together get organized and put as much pressure on to kind of see those those solutions championed so that we can for sure and and effectively channeling that through the the outdoors uh, industry yeah yeah pow protect our winters we rely on our partners i mean Lindsay is our, our partnership manager uh, massively for for funding um as you can imagine campaigning comes at a very high cost but also you know, we can try and pour lots of money into social media and marketing and, and we'll only get so far. But when we get all our athletes and our brands to come together and use all of their uh, databases, then our reach is not just, you know, 50,000. It's more like 5 million. And so we can be a lot more effective through that sort of B2B to C um, model. Cool. Excellent. Well, yeah, as uh, you probably know, um, you know, I'm a, a huge supporter of Protector uh, Our Winters uh, of uh, POW and you know, I have my own um, lobbying group, let's say, Ski Flight Free. And Ski Flight Free, you know, I set it up in 2019. It's really just a, a design to try and encourage people to understand that there are other ways of going on a ski holiday without actually flying it. It literally does what it says on the tin. And one of the reasons I wanted to have both of you on the uh, show today 
is because recently you've both managed to go uh, out to the outs without actually flying and kept your uh, emissions uh, right down. Now, I'm going to start with Lindsay, if it's OK, because I know that you're in Val at the moment and you went out by train. Now, now I've travelled by train a, a bunch of times. I think listeners might know uh, the, the format. But you, you want to tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got there and how it went? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I I was heading from London or just outside London, which uh, means that you're very close to the Eurostar. Eurostar from St. Pais over to Paris Gare du Nord. The plan was the quick changeover um, from Gare du Nord to Gare du Lyon and to hop on the WeGo train, which is the direct train that goes from Gare de Lyon down to Bourg Saint-Maurice. And again, swift changeover onto a bus and straight up to the resort. Um, didn't quite 100% go to plan, <laughs> but um, that was due to the UK train strikes. Um, in order to make all of the connections work, as with a lot of things here, you have to be on one of the, the earliest Eurostar of the day. If you want to get a direct train from the Gare de Lyon to Bourg Saint-Maurice, you can go a little bit later and change in Chambry, but I was I was lazy and didn't want to do too many changes, <laughs> um, lugging my, my ski bag around because as per usual, I packed way too much stuff. Unfortunately, yeah, because the train strikes, they cancelled my Eurostar and offered to put me back a couple of hours, which just would have had that knock on effect of not being impossible but a lot more admin in changing trains and things like that. So I... I decided to change this into an opportunity and moved my train forward a day, uh, hopped over to Paris, spent a lovely afternoon wandering uh, along the banks of the Seine, took myself up and had a nice restful evening before heading to the mountains. Excellent. Well, it doesn't sound, doesn't sound so bad, uh, but um, I would point out this was UK strikes that cancelled yes. your uh, Eurostar. And, you know, these things do happen from time to time. But I, I guess one of, to me, one of the big advantages of uh, train travel is that you can get to enjoy uh, Paris as well. Typically for me, it might be if I've got a longer connection between arriving at Gare Nord and then departing from uh, Gare Lyon. Uh, there was a, a one of my journeys earlier this year. I had, I think, three hours in between. And like you, I took a little walk along the uh, Seine. I found a nice restaurant where I could have lunch, etc. And also, if you've got a bit of time, you know, walk. It's like any of these things. Walk two or three blocks away from the station. And suddenly, you know, the restaurants cost half the price from the ones that are just uh, uh, gathered around. In terms of uh, the WeGo train that you took, I get uh, that it makes sense to take a, a direct train if you want to, or if you can. I took a WeGo train from Paris to Madan when I went to uh, Arel earlier this year. How did you find the actual train itself? Brilliant. Great. I was very glad. So um, the, the WeGo train is the kind of budget airline model of uh, TGV. So they've, they've kind of tried to copy this budget airline model, stripped out all of the luxury um, luxury items, put a couple of extra you know rows of seats in and stuff like that. So the... I think the key bit for that that made the journey good was that I knew that in advance. I'd gone and looked at, um, you know, I've just gone online and searched, you know, what's it like to do So I knew that there wasn't a restaurant car and I had to take my own food. Fortunately, Paris, full of boulangeries. I, I took, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, in the, you're in the land of baking goodness. So, um, you know, I took myself some lovely sandwiches and yeah, just the preparation. The the train itself, super smooth. They're double decker. So I got a, I paid, I think it was five euro extra to make sure that I had a seat on the top deck. So I had a really lovely view. You def, you're guaranteed a plug spot so that you can, you know, watch a film or whatever. And it's, it was just great. It's super, super easy, super slick. And one of the best things that I thought was the way the landscape changes between Paris and by the time you get to the mountains, it's just so cool to sit there and just watch that glide by because it starts off so, so flat. 
Uh, and then you kind of get into the sort of gentle rolling hills and you're starting to see these other little villages and things like that. And then when you first see the mountains just over kind of in the distance, um, it really it gets that that's kind of sense of excitement that I don't think you get on planes when you're stuck in a, you know, in a corridor, in another queue for border control. Da, 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 and you can just see those mountains getting closer and closer. I love it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you probably um, were enjoying the view more than I normally give myself time to appreciate because I tend to, you know, use that time on the trains often to work. And the Wi-Fi I have found historically is uh, on board, whether any of the SNCF uh, trains. Uh, the point you make about WeGo is uh, it's quite important there that you can reserve your own seat. And when I travelled on it as well, it was also a bit like a budget airline in that I paid a bit extra to uh, book in a bag as well. No one ever checked, as far as I could see, with checking in uh, uh, that bag. Uh, I don't know if they monitored it in any way. Um, so I, I had one of those kind of spectacular language fails where <laughs> I just, I, you, you know, you're trying to like rack the back of your brain for some GCSE French and and kicking yourself for not uh, not being better and learning some before you came. Because I, I did exactly the same. I booked my train ticket and then you have all the additional add-ons. So I paid for the seat upstairs, which I think was about five euro to to have the the plug socket and my own seat that I'd chosen um then I paid I'm gonna say off the top of my head it was 12 euro but I'm not sure to book my ski bag into the luggage compartment no one checked everyone was super easy about it you know there's a bit of juggling as people as everyone gets on but they give you loads of time because I think they start boarding about 40 minutes before they they go and they close about five minutes before so that's just one to know compared to kind of UK trains you can't be running down the platform with 35 seconds to go and just catch it get there with some time um and and everyone was you know everyone's in the same boat so everyone's good about moving luggage and things like that and there's only about three or four stops so um once once everyone's on settled in I made I made friends with the Jack Russell that was sat next to me (laughs) Uh, I, I popped open my Haribo you know kind of got my book it was great Excellent. And what about the the final uh, uh, section from Borg up to Val d'Isere? Was it fairly straightforward to get a coach up there? Oh, yep. Super easy. I mean, um, there's Ultibus um, website, which I mean, the website's a bit clunky on phones. Um, but as long as you can manage to get that date in properly, then it's it's great for getting around. Um, it's just like catching a bus. It's easy. It's And, and what's nice, actually, because our, tra- our train ended up being delayed by about... Not long, long, about seven or eight minutes. But because all the buses are scheduled for when the trains arrive, uh, they hold on. So if the train's running a little bit late, they will hold on for you. So um, there were some people who were a bit worried about, oh, I'm going to miss my transfer up the hill. The infrastructure's there for the reason to get people up the hill. So that's, you know, they, they do tend to hold on for you if the train's not too late. Great. So in not just uh, uh, Switzerland, where they uh, they make sure all the connections work out in France uh, as well. Excellent. That's great, Lindsay. And uh, maybe going to let us know how your return journey comes back when you eventually come back from Val d'Isere. <laughs> uh, Lauren, uh, turn to you, if I uh, may. Uh, you did something that I've, I've done a, a couple of times before, experimented a couple of times before now, which is driving out to the Alps in an EV. Slightly different, though, because you actually started in Scotland, I believe. Yeah, so I um, live in a little hamlet about 10 minutes outside Aviemore called Feshy Bridge. So I actually took the train, uh, the Highland Chieftain Service from LNER, Highland Chieftain Service from Aviemore and King's Cross, and then transferred over. Uh, um, and I'd actually, I actually drove out with two of our board members. They picked me up, uh, Haywards Heath, I think, and then we just sort of cruised on, on from there. 
Right, excellent. And so what vehicle were you in? So we were in uh, Scott's nice new uh, company car, which was, I'm pretty sure, a Tesla Model Y. Is it the new okay. one? The new yeah, small yeah. Company? I mean, I drove out a Tesla Y to uh, Zermatt and Chamonix in the summer. And nice. I'm guessing that yours probably similar to that. So ours had like a, a formal range of 330 miles. Does yeah. that sound about right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And how did he find charging along the way then? Oh, my little red rocket has done 112,000 miles and it's like, I bought it for £2,000 and it's on its last legs. And I was having a look this morning because uh, I was so impressed um, how much it would be to kind of, I don't know, do a, a lease or something. I'm definitely dreaming if that's what I think I can afford. Um, do, do you know what actually really struck me was we could have cut down our time a lot more if we were just snappier at charging. You know, because actually we were the ones that were delaying it because there was three of us in the car. By the time everyone goes for a pee, gets a coffee, that takes way longer than you think. You know, when you plug yourself into these Tesla superchargers, it was like 20 minutes to 100% charge. You know, at two, at one point at 240, let me get this right, 240 uh, volts, just over 900 miles an hour in terms of the, the charging and just crazy. Yeah, I mean, those super Tesla superchargers. So I have a, a Tesla 3, and I've driven that Tesla Y before as well. And when you go to the superchargers, it is brilliant. When you look on the screen there, you see it's like whacking in 900 miles an hour into the uh, into the battery. And what yeah. I really like about it as well is presumably someone had the app on their phone. So you can wander off, you know, you go in and, and go to the bathroom, get yourself a cup of tea, just be looking at your phone and see, and you know exactly you know, how much longer you've got until it's time to move on again. And I also really like uh, that feature within the Tesla where, you know, you mentioned that it, it um, you know, chooses your uh, superchargers for you. So you just plug it into the screen, it makes all that decision making uh, so much easier that as listeners will know, when I drove out there in a, a Ford Mach-E, I didn't have that convenience and that made it a lot more uh, difficult. And what about in the, in the mountains itself? I mean, we mentioned cold temperatures. Did you um, see any loss of range once the temperatures dropped down? We were a bit tactical that we pushed on um, and kind of went, you know, and we're kind of conservative with our, with our speed. We got to Albertville and there's superchargers in Albertville and then we just whacked it in at that we went to mcdonald's got like a, like a cup of coffee or something we we left with a 100 percent battery to be honest i didn't notice a huge amount of you know a decrease in, in performance um and it was actually surprisingly very good in the snow because i'd never dr driven a tesla before and what i found it kind of took a little sort of minute to kind of wrap my head around is that you know you take your foot off the brake and it automatically starts breaking for you. So it took me a little bit minute, you know, a little, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes to get it smooth. But it was really, really good in the snow. Way better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, part of that is that that regenerative braking that you're talking about there is great. You don't have to put your foot on the on the brake, and that obviously makes it a bit more secure. I think as well with electric cars, because the weight is very evenly distributed. I mean, you've got that battery that sits along the base of the car, whereas most cars 
have all the way over the engine and that makes them more difficult to uh, control so you know that can be a factor uh, in it as well and you know what you're saying there makes a lot of sense you just like make sure that you charge up that vehicle because lots of people said to me oh well, you know there's a problem with electric vehicles in resort because it's going to get really cold but once you're there you tend to do a lot more of driving it's about getting there and getting back and you probably found when you drove down the hill on the way back basically when you go downhill you're just adding range the whole time that regen yeah. uh, is continually increasing the uh, range you do need to think about it on that final bit up to the resort because obviously the demand uh, in terms of power when you're going uphill is even greater but that's really good really good to hear another positive experience about people uh, driving out the Alps in an electric car and I think we're going to be increasingly seeing more of that as people you know look to choose ways to you know reduce their emissions because you know I'm not I, I, I don't want people to stop going skiing I want people to just look at what the alternatives are lots of people drive to the Alps uh, already and you can drive in an electric car I want to debunk the theory that it's not possible uh, Lindsay yeah I was just um as you're saying it's not about not going skiing or, or necessarily like changing your holidays but the travel to resort is depending on how you go between 65 and 85 percent of your emissions related to your holiday so if you can reduce those that's the biggest change that you can make in order to make your holiday greener yeah i mean that's it that is the most valid point and i think probably hopefully most people understand uh, this by now but actually what happens in resort does make a difference as well and i think there is there's plenty of uh, research that suggests that uh, consumers you know people looking to book holidays are tending to choose resorts now on the basis of what their sustainable policies are and that actually leads, leads on quite well to my next segment because i was out in maribel uh, last month and one of the things i did while i was in maribel was i went i went to go and look at an array of solar panels on the salir express and talk to uh, Clement Martineau from Mirabel Alpina. So let's have a listen to that. Cool. Well, I'm standing here in the snow and it's snowing uh, just now. Uh, and I'm with uh, Clement Martineau uh, from Mirabel Alpina. Hi, Clement. Uh, how are you today? Very good. We've got snow, so... Yeah, exactly. Well, we're standing at the mid-station on the Salir Express uh, here in Mirabel. And I particularly wanted to come up here. And it's very kind of you to come up to show me. Because we're standing in the middle of uh, an array of solar panels which are, are surround us. I can't remember how many panels there are, actually. Can you remember? 182 panels. Right, 182 panels. They're all two metres by one metre. They cover 400 metres uh, surface area in total. And obviously they can generate a lot of uh, power. They're not going to be generating much power today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there is no sun, so maybe uh, today is not the perfect day to produce. Yeah, not the perfect day to produce. But I mean, I think that the plan was never really that they're going to produce as much in the winter months. Yeah. They will produce more uh, power in the summer months, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's true. And that's why we, we count the produce all the year, not just during winter. Yeah, so I think in total, according to what I looked at, uh, the, the annual production should be around 120,000 kilowatt hours, I think, yeah. from all of this, which yeah. isn't quite enough to uh, run the lift uh, here, but makes a significant contribution. And in the summer months, if the lift isn't running, then that power can be used and taken into the grid for the rest of Maribel to use? Yeah, of course, in, on, on the, all the electrical system, yeah. 
uh, yeah. during summer too, yeah. Yeah, but something that's really interesting about these, I mean, right now, quite a lot of them have got snow on them. And the snow is actually, because the angle they're at, yeah. which is at 40 degrees, that's yeah. right, yes. been designed to get the most out of the sun. Yeah. But they're very different panels because... They're called, uh, what did you call it uh, before in French? It's the um, bifacial. Bifacial, and, uh, exactly. With, um, with the albedo effect. So they can produce on the both sides. Uh, the panels can produce on their both sides. So it's very interesting because uh, um, the company who, who makes these panels uh, work for this problematic. What, what problematic is, is the mountain problematic with the snow because we we can't you know um, move the snow during winter so um, so the company pro proposed to to have you know the bifacial with the effect albedo so yeah yeah so basically these panels can generate power from both sides yeah. from the side that's facing up towards the sun yeah. but they're also able to uh, generate power from the reflection of the sun yeah. off the snow, off the snow yeah. uh, on the on the uh, rear facing side yeah. which makes them about is it about 20 percent more effective uh, like that yes of course first time in france and in montaigne so yeah well that, uh, that's great and so there are a lot of panels here and um, this is just part of all of the different uh, measures that are taking place. Mirabel is owned, or Mirabel Alpina is owned by Company Des Alpes, much larger yes. company that owns lots of different resorts. They have a, uh, a, a remit for a net zero by 2030. And we yeah. were discussing on the way up, there's some other things that uh, Company Des Alpes have done as well with the yeah. snow groomers. Yeah, because we, we yeah, it, it, it's true, it's, it's, a, it's a project with, um, other resorts by Company des Alpes. The first one was Serre Chevalier. It, it was a resort who was precursor. And then the big innovation this year with Company des Alpes is the, yeah, the snow grooming with the, the, you know, the fuel uh, who passed to a vegetable oil. Uh, all our machines this winter will be, uh, will be equipped. So it's good because, um, you know, for the atmosphere, for the um, uh, CO2. Yep, the emissions. Emission, yep. emissions uh, we win about yeah, uh, 90% uh, yeah. of and, emissions. And, and it's a really significant uh, part of a ski resort's output. I think a lot of people don't realise this. They look at the lifts and they think, oh, the lifts use a lot of power. But a lot of the lifts are run by renewables like these solar panels and hydro. Yeah. But those groomers yeah. have previously, they've all been diesel, yeah. and now they're on HVO, hydrogenated yeah. vegetable oil, yes, yeah? With uh, oil, um, vegetable oils, and some oils, you know, we, we recycle. Yeah. Uh, like um, to cook, oil, oil to cook, like, uh, you know, potatoes and things yeah. like that. So we work with this. So that's, that's good. I think the, the only emission is to, um, to drive from the, from the bottom to the top of the station. Yep. It's, it's, it's an emission who, who we can't uh, now, you know, uh, I mean, you improve yep. our impact. Yeah. Well, it's made a significant difference anyway. And that, I mean, that's across all of the company that's out resorts. I think it's about 130 snow groomers in total, isn't it? Uh, so, uh, 100, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, 160, I think. Right, so. there you go. Even even more than I thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's brilliant seeing this, and I think there might be plans to introduce more solar panels for some of the other lifts. Yeah. Maybe Rodos, you mentioned. You know, maybe, some yeah. others. We'll yeah, see. Yeah. See what yeah. happens. But uh, that's great. That's brilliant. Thanks. For, thank you very much for your time, Clément. Thank you.
So that was really interesting talking to Clément. And that's all part of Company Des Out, which is a big company, owns lots of ski resorts, plan to cut their emissions. And they actually have a, a net zero target, which they're progressing towards you know, pretty quickly. But let's move on now to a Team GB. There's quite a lot to catch up on. Uh, Dave Riding. Uh, you may have noticed this on Ski Sunday. I may have read that. He came second in the Kitzbühel Slalom, uh, which is a, an excellent result. Uh, and obviously, he won there uh, last year. But Mia Brooks, who I interviewed uh, at the Birmingham Ski Show, she's uh, only 16. She's doing a GCSEs uh, this year, as my children are. And on top of that, she's managed to uh, take a, a fifth in a, a World Cup event and then second at the Lax Open Freestyle Snowboard. So she's been on the podium in the World Cup in her first year in the World Cup circuit, which is extremely impressive. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Zoe Atkin picked up gold in the uh, Superpipe at the uh, X Games. Kirsty Muir picked up a bronze at the X Games. I think two bronzes, actually. Uh, and Michaela Gherkin Schofield, a third uh, in the uh, Moguls in the World Cup as well. So some really good results there. We have the World Championships coming up in Les Trois-Vallées, hosted uh, jointly between Courcheval and Meribel from the 6th to the 13th of February. Uh, that will be... Really interesting to watch. Obviously, it's the ski side of things. Uh, but I'm just going to drop in a quick a segment from an interview I did with Ed Lee. That will be our next podcast coming uh, probably in about a week's time. Uh, presenter of uh, Ski Sunday, who's currently out in uh, Courcheval. And um, just give you a sample of our conversation now. It's that if you can't see it, you can't be it. And Ski Sunday and Ski Sunday is probably the most high-profile mainstream, but every layer of ski media in the UK, for a country with no mountains, we're producing a lot of talent. And that comes from, I'm sure it was the same, similar for you, but I hear this story so many times. People are like, oh, I got into it by watching. People just didn't have an idea, but they watch Ski Sunday and they're like, oh, that exists. I'll give that a try. We watched Ski Sunday with David Vine. My dad was passionate about it, and we all sat down to watch it. And they built Gloucester Dry Ski Slope close to the house. So my dad was like, we're going to learn to ski. And my mum was a teacher. So we were able to tag on to the back of a school ski holiday, bargain basement. And that, that actually comes back to the first point we made about DSUK and eBay. I'm passionate about making the mountains affordable. I think that they have such a powerful ability to broaden people's horizons metaphorically and literally that it, it's, it doesn't have to be really expensive. You can get out there and enjoy them. It's, they are accessible. If It takes a bit of ambition, a bit of hard work, but it's available to everyone. And I love that role that Ski Sunday fulfills is to get, is to help people see what's possible there. And I, 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 that's one of the biggest privileges of being a part of the show is that it inspired me and now it ha- I know that I know the the effect it has on other people. Now, that was really interesting talking to Ed, so you'll be able to listen to that full interview uh, next week. Now, I enjoy all feedback about the show, and I really like to know what you think, uh, ideas for features, uh, etc. So please contact me uh, either on social at the ski podcast or by email the ski podcast at gmail.com i had a few uh emails in rachel flynn said absolutely loving the podcast uh bobbin ch i think that's on snowheads uh, said james was a such great listen he's talking about the uh, skiing in iraq uh, feature we did in episode 166 a uh, cat rib said how have i not come across this before just listen to the two recent episodes and they're great 
That's very kind of you, Kat. Uh, Joe Child sent me an email. I'm completely addicted to your podcast. I really like the mix of content alongside the frequent sustainability features, uh, equipment reviews and snow reports. Uh, having watched the first episode of Ski Sunday of the season, uh, probably my favourite TV programme, he says, on the 8th of January, I searched Spotify for something similar and found the ski podcast. Well, that's great to hear, uh, Joe. Uh, since then, I've listened to 41 of the episodes and I have no plans to slow down. Uh, well, 41 is quite a lot. We do have over 160 episodes to catch up with. I had a look earlier and there are 109 listened to in the last week. Uh, if you want to do something to help the show, that would be great. You can always give us a review. I noticed there's some new reviews on Apple Podcasts. Too many to fit into this episode, but I'll uh, feature them in probably an episode 170. But you can also give us reviews on Spotify and Facebook as well, or just comment on our social media. Uh, so we're just going to come to the close now. For now, I'd like to thank Letois Valet for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today. Lauren, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure. And Lindsay, thank you. Thanks for having us. And Al, as always, thank you to you as well. Ian, honestly, it's so much fun. Thank you. Brilliant. And finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.